Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. Good evening, everyone. It's an absolute delight to see you all here tonight. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we stand, the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to the wisdom of Elders past and present. We are on unceded land. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. My name's Demetria Grutzis. I'm Associate Professor in the Business School and also Academic Director of the Athena Swan Science in Australia Gender Equity Program. This program takes an evidence-based approach to explaining and understanding various metrics when it comes to progress on gender, intersectionality, equity, diversity and inclusion across the university. And this includes all faculties, schools, professional services units, students and staff. This evidence-based approach really holds us to account It also allows us to start a conversation with the broader tertiary sector about these really important issues. I'm really proud to be leading this program at the University of Sydney along with a really tiny team of staff members but also a broader team of really dedicated and committed staff and students across the university. We're really, really, really excited to be co-hosting this event tonight with Sydney Ideas. The title of this evening's discussion is Activating Allies for Gender Equality and we have an amazing panel of speakers tonight, experts in their field and I'm hoping that they will provide us with some insights into how we can go beyond the discourse and engagement to action and accountability. So hopefully we'll have some helpful insights by the end of this discussion. On that note, it's my very great pleasure to introduce our MC and host for this evening's event, Antoinette Latouf. Antoinette is an author, a journalist, podcaster, diversity advocate, to name but a few of her many, many skills and talents. I'm also really privileged to call her a friend. So over to you, Antoinette. Thank you. Thank you so much, Demetria. I'd like to introduce all of the panel to come and join me. So we've got a really big job ahead of us in the next 55 minutes. We're pretty much going to solve the patriarchy, solve all of the issues. So take note. It's going to be easy. It's going to be fun. We're going to do it. I too would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge any First Nations people with us in the room or virtually today. What an amazing panel. We have so much to get through. Um, Thank you so much, Elizabeth Broderick, AO, just stepped away from her role as UN Special Rapporteur and um, independent expert on discrimination against women and girls. Also the founder and convener of the Champions of Change Coalition, which was formerly the Male Champions of Change and Australia's longest serving sex discrimination commissioner. Thank you, Elizabeth, for joining us. Thank you. (laughs) 
Professor Mustafa Osbiljan, Professor of Organisational Behaviour at Brunel Business School in London, whose research focuses on workplace equality, diversity and inclusion, also collaborates and research with Demetria and her team. Thank you so much for joining us. And also Tom Snow, Chair of Snow Medical Board and Chair of Equality Australia. You may have seen in the news today the announcement of $100 million into immunology from Snow Medical. That's one of the biggest ever investments into medical research in Australia. Thank you. So I always like a little list. It makes my Virgo heart happy. Um, and so we're going to approach this conversation in three ways. We're going to start on true allyship, what it is and why it's so important now. And then looking at some generational and intersectional differences and what challenges and opportunities they present. And then we're going to wrap up with some sort of practical tips and ways to ensure that those rhetoric and lovely promises are more than just words um, and there are some accountability measures in place. So, Elizabeth, I'll, I'll start with you. Why is male allyship so important now? I mean, it's always been important, but particularly for this moment in history. Yeah, I think for this moment in history, what we're seeing globally, and I'm speaking here just about the work that I've been doing with the United Nations, is we're seeing a huge backlash um, against human rights generally, but particularly the rights of women and girls and LGBTI community. So if we look at when human rights, when women were able to express their human rights, enjoy their human rights, we'd be going back to the Beijing Platform for Action in 1995. That was the high water mark. And it's kind of gone you know, progressively to where we are today, where, as I said, we're seeing a backlash. Just to give you some examples of that, um, what we're seeing in the US in terms of women's reproductive rights, and particularly the lack of access to reproductive services in half the states of the US today, abortion is not an option for women. We're seeing the issues around Afghanistan, Iran. We're seeing in Istanbul, in Turkey, we're seeing the convention, which is the Istanbul Convention on Elimination of Violence Against Women and girls, which was conceived and signed in Turkey. The Turkish government has now um, withdrawn from that, and that's having a contagion effect in that area. And even if we come into our region here, just Sri Lanka at the minute, there's a bill before the parliament which says that women no longer will be required to sign their marriage certificate, their male guardian can do that on their behalf, or even coming up here into Indonesia with the criminalisation of intimate relationships before marriage which disproportionately adversely impacts women and girls and also the LGBTI community. They're just a few that I want to put out there, but also coming back here to Australia now, is that even the gender compass, which came out just two weeks ago, shows that 59% of Australians fundamentally believe that gender equality is finished business. That's almost 60% of our population. So that's kind of the, the backlash that I'm talking about. And in an environment like that, if we don't have everyone on board, and particularly men, men who hold the levers of power in pretty much every nation of the world, not exclusively, but largely, if we don't have men stepping up with us and people of all genders to actually focus on gender equality, then we have no chance of moving forward. So I think this moment, it's particularly important for anyone who's sitting on the fence, but particularly male allies, to step in with us and join us on this journey of gender equality. 
And Tom, why do you think men need to stand up and what impact can that have? You mentioned the levers of power and, you know, you can frame that in terms of privilege, you can frame that in so many different ways. Quite simply, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem here. But let me take it from a different angle. On the marriage equality campaign, we advocated and advocated, and if, if, if I went up there as a gay man or a lesbian went up there and said, you know, we should get married and it should, you know, should be equal, you're not going to get any press coverage, you're not going to get any traction. And so what we did was we quite systematically used people who had that privilege and who had that voice. And the more blokey the bloke and the more, you know, they came from regional news, you know, Queensland or something like that, like, you know, we had a crocodile hunter out there advocating for the gays. Wasn't, didn't really understand what is totally advocating, but they should have the same thing. And it was right. And so we have a position of power and it's, and it's really important that we do that in a sensitive way. Like we stand on the backs of generations of women and, and men as well, but, but primarily women who fought the fight for, for years and years and years. Uh, it's important to acknowledge that. Um, but we really do need to stand up there. And, you know, I remember for myself, there was a thing at University of Melbourne where they had six white old male men with honorary doctorates. And like, we probably all saw it on social media. We go, oh, that's outrageous. And we post it. And I did that, and then I went away. And it wasn't until a week later, I woke up. And I'm like, wait a second. I'm like, I'm fr- I am from a position of privilege here. It, it, it is important. And so I stood up, and it's, and it's stupid, and it's crazy, and it's unfair. But, you know, I got coverage when other people wouldn't have. And, mm-hmm. and so we need men to stand up and do that, whether it's in the public sphere or whether it's in work environments. So you got coverage just by calling it out? Just by calling out. Well, there's two things. One, I was a, a bloke, yeah. um, a male, not, not a bloke, really, come on. <laughs> um, but, you know, a white male, yes. um, with position privilege, we were funding it, so we, we, we pulled funding. That, well, I that, think that's that, an important That was a power. Yes. You know, there's so many positions where men have that. Men have it in workplaces, men have it in universities, men have it in relationships in many cases. So it's important that we all stand up and, and use what we have for the best. Mustafa, I'll bring you in at this point. Um, and I want to talk about how important it is, I guess, to dangle the carrot and communicate that gender equality benefits men too, or, and gender diverse people. Just looking in this room, I can count the amount of men on one hand, even though this is about activating male allies. I'm not sure how many are online. Um, you know, I think from the registration, we had about 15% who identified as, as male. What more do we do, need to do to engage people and is it fair to have to go well this is to lean into how this is going to benefit you to get their attention actually i give a different spin positive spin maybe um if you look at the most recent oecd survey it shows that over 85 percent of leaders uh, predominantly male are committed to equality so that's a good starting point But the survey identified that the primary reason why we don't make progress is the translation. The message gets lost in translation. We need to turn it into actions, like Tom highlighted, concrete actions. And this requires what um, Dimitriya was saying, evidence-based work. What works within the context of... So I think not all men would be attracted to carrot. So we need to dangle different things in front of them. <laughs> um, and I think that some of them will be convinced by the social case, moral case. Um, they would have sophisticated moral knowledge. I think we shouldn't undermine 
man's knowledge, they would be, I think, um, uh, at the core, as human beings, would be committed to equality because it's an important value. But I think what goes wrong um, with um, allyship processes is that uh, we are also putting man on the spot rather than questioning the systems which prioritize patriarchy. So, so is in putting individual men on the spot rather than yes. showcasing or highlighting the system behind them? That's right. We're going to get back to that in our next section. But Tom, I often hear from men who probably fall into that 85% of leaders who say that they are, in theory, committed to gender equality. But then when it comes to saying certain things or acting in certain ways, some of the sorts of things, oh, it's, it's really hard, it's fraud, I don't know what to say, I don't want to overstep, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Do you accept those sort of, that it is hard and that, fear of getting it wrong is is enough to not try? I, I think it's a reasonable question to answer. And in fact, that's a totally right question to answer. And again, I, the analogy in the... We have this in the LGBTIQ space, right? So we have our allies who are bigger supporters and we need them, and thank you for those of them who are, to support us. But, but they sort of go, well, am I allowed to say that? Am I allowed to... You know, people were looking for a license to say it. So I think that one of the key things is actually creating, you know, an environment which actually is encouraging men to say, hey, come on, we, you know. And so in every workplace from the top, we should be saying, men, you are equally responsible for this the whole way through the organisation and not just at the top, not just at the bottom, but the whole way through predominantly senior leadership too. I'm sure in your role as Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Elizabeth, these sorts of things would have been put to you in, in the press. How do you respond to, oh, but it's so hard for blokes these days, I don't want to get it wrong? Yeah, no, you're Like absolutely. that, with a bit of laughter. Yeah, yeah. yeah a bit of laughter. No, just, just get it wrong. Actually, just get it wrong, it's right? It's quite just hard get... for women as well, but yeah, no. You're absolutely right. I mean, I never kind of try to take dignity from an individual. I mean, as a human rights advocate, as someone who fundamentally believes in human rights, if you say totally something that's outrageous, I won't strip you of dignity, but I'll try and find some common ground. So I totally agree with you. What we need to do is make the safe space. But I do think on occasion we need to call men out and we need to call the patriarchy out because men are operating, we're all operating in a system of patriarchy, but if encouraging men to examine their own power and privilege and not just get away with an excuse, oh, it's so complex, and oh, you, you women have got it sorted anyway. No, that is not good enough anymore. We need everyone on board, and we'll help you learn, because it is hugely complex. We'll help you learn. We won't dump on you from a huge height, but we are expecting you to take equal responsibility with us for change. Yeah, just in the media space, that's where a lot of, sort of my advocacy and equity experience is. When, historically, men have gotten it wrong, they usually get three TV shows or another column or a billboard. The repercussions, is it fair to say, the repercussions for getting it wrong uh, or saying the wrong thing um, are often not very big. Mustafa, it could go in another direction where people overstep. Talk me through the saviour complex. Yes, saviour complex happens when a male ally brings a woman under their wing thinking that this will provide equality of opportunity, expand the zone for gender equality. But that's not the aim of allyship, if it's going to be an effective allyship, because that's a very ineffective way. And it makes other men think that an unfair game is played. 
So what they need to do if they want to show allyship is to show allyship to a cause and change the systems that disadvantage women go back to their organizations and consider their systems and structures, the context that provide gender inequality, that perpetuate gender inequality, rather than to save, try and save individual women. And it's also a very patronizing relationship for women. Women don't need fixing. Systems need fixing. Yeah, couldn't agree more. <laughs> I want to talk about some of the sort of generational differences and challenges. Um, Mustafa, what do you think the best way for the Gen X generation to address for that growing breed or flavour of misogyny that is developing in young men who are spending a lot of time online? I think Gen X, we are uh, responsible for the failure of gender equality interventions. So we should not hold young men responsible for the misogyny that they are holding because we are more misogynous than younger men. Younger men are, um, I find them more um, cognizant of uh, social justice values. But younger men are also influenced, are susceptible, because as Generation X and um, uh, boomers, we have accumulated, hoarded actually, so much wealth, and we have destroyed the future of younger generations. So their misogyny is a, a backlash against uh, what we have done wrong, so, do you think then too much attention is paid on those, you know, influenced by the Andrew Tates of it? There's so much conversation, you know, and there's a lot of concern, prob yes. probably rightly so, but Oops. do you think it's disproportionate or the gaze or the concern is misdirected? I think we need to, um, going back to Dimitrios and Liz's point about data and evidence, we have not done enough to show generation of young men that gender equality is important value is a virtue for all. And as a result, some of them have become susceptible. And uh, Andrew Tate, all of my students are quoting Andrew Tate. And I use Andrew Tate as a talking point and then encourage students to collect evidence to show Andrew Tate's points hold value in science, social science. So it's very important to tackle these uh, emerging forms of misogyny. Tom. I'm keen to get an idea of any of your observations of the different ways in which allyship has been exercised amongst different generations from, you know, boomers, Gen X. Are you seeing those sorts of differences and what can we learn from them? I, th I think we're seeing a lot of different changes through generations and the most obvious one is the change between, say, my parents' generation and my generation. And you see that in attitudes to women, you, and that is a proxy for attitudes to, you know, race, it's a proxy for, for LGBTIQ people, it's a proxy for all sorts of attitudes around discrimination. So, and what, and we saw this in the marriage equality campaign, we saw that someone who was 40 was almost certainly going to vote yes, someone who was 50 probably was on the margin, someone who's 60 was most likely to vote no. And we see that in all, all attitudes. So that, and it is an amazing and an amazingly positive thing, and I think that, that all credit to all the people that have driven that change, because there's been a huge amount of people that do it. When we go to the younger generations, it starts to get really complicated. And I think there's a polarisation happening that's quite scary. So when you measure the average and the mean, attitudes are actually, the, what my reading of the data, are getting better on issues including attitudes to women in workplaces and LGBTIQ Australians and other attitudes. But 
there is an increasingly large rump of predominantly men who are predominantly often a bit disadvantaged, who are not doing as well economically, who have attitudes that policies towards women, let's say in workplaces, this is one, you know, one measure I've seen, are disadvantaging them and so women are getting a better deal. Now, we know, everyone in this room knows that's not true. But there is that perception. And so how do you, you know, what, what do you do to fight that? I mean, num number one, it's not a zero-sum game, right? It is not, we are all better off if we treat everyone equally and decently in the workplace and give everyone opportunity. That is best for everyone. It's best for white men. It's best for everyone. And so teaching that is hard. But, you know, there's a whole lot of problems around, you know, these people, a lot of these people are struggling economically and so often it's a, it's a function of you know society is becoming more unequal and so you know we've got to address things like you know how how the least advantaged in society are being treated and that's going to improve things so there's a lot of work we can do but it, there is an increasing concern and you're talking about it on the right that the far right they're targeting these people is men and um it's really sad and the other thing I think is we're going through such change at the minute, you know, accelerated digitisation, climate change, increasing inequality, all those things. And I think in a period of disequilibrium, people want to go back to what they know, and that's back to tradition. You know, when men were men and women were women and we all had defined roles and whatever. And I think that's another reason that we're seeing such, you know, polarity and such unease, particularly in certain cohorts around gender equality. But you're absolutely right. The challenge is, how do we help everyone see that gender equality benefits everyone? Um, as you say, it's not a zero-sum game. And Liz, we had a few questions ahead of the event, all of which recognise that there's more work to be done to achieve gender equality and activating male allies is really important. But time and time again, the issue was raised, you know, how do we ensure that gender equality is intersectional and includes women with disability, queer women, First Nations, migrant refugee. How do we ensure that they're not being overlooked and that we're not just activating allies and progress for a certain type of woman? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's actually women like me, educated white women. The women's movement in this country has lifted us disproportionately to my Aboriginal sisters, you know, women from culturally diverse backgrounds. And that's, I think, one of the failures of the women's movement in this country. So if we want a leadership in this country which is, represents the diversity, we need to lift women who come from a different starting point to me to a much greater height. So how do we do that? I actually don't think it's on the women themselves. I think it's actually, you know, the women with disabilities, the lesbian women, the trans women. It's actually on organisations to actually ensure that their strategies and policies, the way they hire people, the way they promote people, that they've got strategies in place which recognises the different starting points of different women. And I think we just haven't done a good enough job in helping everyone see that the system that exists today is not fair. It's not treating women equally, diverse women. And in fact, I mean, even if I look at men, men are as diverse as women. There'll be men who are impoverished, who have low educational, low socioeconomic status. They will be doing disproportionately worse as well. So there's that. The other thing I would say is the Champions of Change have done some amazing work around power. So they said, look, we could have an infinite number of strategies you know, addressing, say, an Aboriginal woman with a disability, a woman, you know, of colour with, you know, certain attributes. Instead of that, why wouldn't we look at what is common amongst all of them, all of us, and that is our access to or lack of access to power? Because how organisational systems and structures distribute power 
is what means that I get ahead and my Aboriginal sister doesn't. So what if we started to interrogate that and each of us who lead and have power and influence, so let's start interrogating where do we spend our time, who do we empower, I mean, how many friends with disability do we have, women with disability? How many Aboriginal friends? Just really starting to understand that. And then if we are going to lead for equality, then let's start to address some of those things. So let's start to actively and intentionally engage, particularly with the diversity of women, who can tell us about their lived experience and what needs to shift if we're to create organisations where everyone can thrive. And on that, Mustafa, what's your advice for organisations on managing those intersectional challenges in equality programs to make sure that they, yes, engage men, but they encourage them to be part of driving that change, but not only driving that change for those people who look like their sisters or mothers or partners. Yes. I have a radical suggestion for that, for organisations in terms of intersectionality. We cannot continue to look at intersectionality as an individual property. We need to start looking at intersectionality as an institutional property. This institution has a gender. It is closer to men or it's closer to women. This institution has a race. It's racialized. It provides better outcomes for certain racial groups, racialized groups. Uh, Similarly, this institution has a sexual orientation, provides differential outcomes. So we need to look at keenly the intersectionality of the institution rather than... We need to leave individuals alone. They don't need fixing. In terms of uh, disadvantage, they don't need fixing. What we need to do is to make sure that our organizations do not continue with their traditional way of discriminating across these categories. And looking at intersections of the institution is better, but we need to continue collecting individual data and cross-cut the data to see what kind of outcomes that individuals that interface with those organizations have. We don't wake up every day thinking, okay, I'm a gay man. Uh, But when we meet the police, suddenly your sexual orientation becomes salient. Similarly, you don't uh, always think uh, you are a woman unless you meet the institution that denigrates your gender. So what we need to have is to create a safe space for all, justice for all within organizations, and that requires organizational development. Most of our intersectional efforts remain stunted at the point of individuals, fragmenting to the point of nonsense, Instead, we can look at the organizations and collect as much data as possible from individuals to make sure that organizations understand organizations creating happiness and unhappiness, satisfaction, dissatisfaction, happiness and misery, actually, uh, at a different measure for different groups. And then looking at the underlying mechanisms and systems and then um, uh, developing those uh, towards equality. So I have a proposition, different proposition to intersectionality and looking at the organisations instead of individuals. Obviously, data is at the heart of accountability and good data. Australia, and this is something Demetria and I speak a lot about, we don't have a good record, particularly on the gender front, of having that intersectional data. Even our census, we don't have 
a census that really captures the robustness of who Australia is. And this is a good segue for us to talk about accountability and no doubt data is going to come into that and some practical tips. Um, so, Tom, how do you suggest we move men from engagement and saying the right things and having the right intention to actual accountability? Sorry, I had to laugh on the data question you said before. We've had to take the ABS to the High Courts twice now. We've had to sue them twice to get LGBTIQ people included in the data. And it's just like, you can't do it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, how do we measure? If you're not measured, you're not counted, basically. So, sorry. Um, how do we get men accountable? Um, I'm thinking about organisations at the moment. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and I think there's a real roadblock in organisations. What we see, we've done... We've surveyed all the universities and medical research institutes as part of what we've done in quite a detailed thing across 32 different measures, et cetera. And what it shows, a lot of it's very positive, a lot of great work's happening. What's really interesting is the very top, we're doing really, really well. At the very bottom, you know, we're doing really, really well, but there's this point in between, and this applies, interestingly, we see it not at only the academic institutions, but we see it in workplaces as well. It's senior upper-level management who are not getting the message are not sending that message through about about it. So I really think that it's that next layer down. So it, it's a professorial level, dean level at a university, it's a it's line manager at a company. They're the people we need to convince. They're the ones we need to make accountable. And we need to get outcomes focused. I think we've spent a lot of time in this country, and to great success by the way, talking about inputs we need to have, you know, this and that you know, all these things to make it right for, for women to be treated right, I think that's great. But there does come a time where you say, well, if you're not doing it, if you're not doing it right, or if you've only got women in your HR department and your, and your marketing department, but not in the real actual money-making departments, you know, you need to stand up to that. And so part of it is reporting that, and then part of it is then saying, what is an acceptable level? And sure, it may not be 50-50 all the time, but it's unacceptable. So we should just call it out for what it is. It's unacceptable. And report it. And do it. So, you know, we measure all the universities on all sorts of different levels. And I know there's some people at Sydney University who are involved in us with that here. And, you know, Sydney Uni is doing the best of all of our institutions. So congratulations to Sydney. Really, you deserve a congratulations for that. But in many measures, they're not. And we're helping them with that. We've, we've raised that with them. And then other institutions are way behind. And it's calling them out on that. And eventually, you know, we're going to say, you're not in if you don't fix up this, this and this. But that needs to be more public. And that information needs to be, you know, in the public sphere. And, and ultimately, you know, people need to call them out. And Antoinette, because I totally agree with that. And I think having the courage to call them out is just so important. But can I also just add to that one of the other ways, I think, to engagement, and we learnt this when we did a review into Australia's military, so looking at the treatment of women in the military. So we flew to a lot of deployed bases as well, and what we found is that women would tell us stories, stories that they'd never told before because they just didn't feel safe enough to tell stories. And out of that, we came to understand that actually helping leaders see the human harm that's actually happening on their watch because of the inequality is absolutely critical to getting them to step up and take more intentional action. And I still remember the first session that we held. We had an incredible woman who duxed Royal Military College Duntry, and she was exactly the talent that the army needed. And she'd had, you know, truly unacceptable service issues that had happened. And we were able to bring her together with the chief of army. We actually asked her to come to bring a support person. She brought her beautiful mother 
And we sat down, the chief of army, this woman and her mother and me, to get this conversation started about what had happened to her. And I still remember, you know, how do you get these conversations about human harm happening? But it was that young woman, she looked at the chief of army and she said, Sir, I feel so nervous. And he just looked at her and he said, you know what, I'm really scared too. And she went on to tell her story about going on exercise when no one spoke to her for months on end. You know, she was sexually insulted by her instructor, the very person she should have been able to go to for advice. And then when she'd tried to speak out about it, she'd, you know, had a career decimated as a result of that. And I think, you know, to be able to do that, the military went on and did that at scale. They did 800 of these sessions. But when you do that and you have this environment of shared vulnerability, I call it, then you can create a whole cohort of changemakers in a really conservative organisation like the military who will then not tolerate the excuses which many organisations come up with. So it is a challenge to make that happen at scale, but we've found that that's probably one of the most single important interventions that you can make to shift culture and the treatment of women. And I understand in Geneva last month, um, a first ever paper on men's accountability and men's engagement was launched. Can you talk me through some quick points from that? Yeah, it's interesting because a few years ago, if you had have suggested, our mandate had have suggested, well, actually, we need men to step up with us. That was like, no, this is women's business. But um, the great thing is, yeah, just last month, our working group launched a paper which looked at how do we take men from just being engaged in gender equality to taking equal accountability for delivering gender equality. And we presented it to many of the ambassadors, many nation states across the world, just helping them see in this context as well, we need everyone getting on board. And I think the ramifications of that, of having you know new normative standards which will talk about men's engagement, men's involvement, because men were not involved back in 1995 at the Beijing Platform for Action. They were just not part of a picture. Now, not only are they part of a picture, but we have got stated aspirations and for what's necessary as well. I mean, firstly, it's about men actually being transparent about what they're doing. Secondly, that they're putting women's human rights at the centre of their action and that their actions are informed by the lived experiences of women as well. I think having some lessons learnt and a, you know, strong standards on that will be really important across the world. So anyway, watch this space. There's some good work happening in many, many countries, including some great developing nations as well. And Mustafa, can you talk us through reverse allyship? and any other practical initiatives that you know have worked? Yes, sure. We've looked at uh, FTSE 500 companies in terms of men's allyship um, for gender equality, and um, we tried to identify effective and ineffective methods of allyship. One of the effective methods appeared to be reverse allyship, where the ally applied some critical listening and understood women's concerns in the workplace, concerns of safety, concerns of inequality, concerns of interpersonal relationships, access to power and resources. Then listening to those concerns translated those concerns in a reverse fashion to organizational design. So allies became co-designers 
of organizations to make them more egalitarian. Unlike the, this, this is a great contrast to a very ineffective method, which is based on male allies showing a trust deficit to women and putting them through hoops, such as education, mentoring, and a lot of fixing practices. When they start listening and start understanding the needs of women to have better um, inclusion in the workplace, and then turn these uh, demands into um, design and make women also not only co-designers, but co-participants and co-owners of the organizations, uh, then it, will, it is very effective. And we have seen that male allies who have achieved that, their companies were showing higher forms of um, uh, gender equality. So it's the reverse approach, which is based on trust and co-ownership. I have one last question. A few people have asked about quotas. How much evidence do we have that they work and they're needed? They do work. They are needed. But we need to look at the talent pipeline. If there is a bottleneck in the talent pipeline, that is the effective way of solving it. They are short-term measures to break men's resistance to women's equality in positions of power and authority. But if there is no bottleneck, there is no need for quotas. I agree with everything Mustafa says. Yeah, um, yeah ditto. Um, but as you say, they are temporary special measures put in place for the achievement of a legitimate aim, which is gender equality. Immediately, that legitimate aim is achieved. And if you look at Norway, they've actually rescinded, I think, their quota legislation and whatever. So, Tom? Absolutely, I agree with everything, and it, should apply, <laughs> and it should apply to political parties too. Okay, wonderful. I will add, there's some research that came out that, yes, quotas might work, but in a CEO level, if the inclusion part of the diversity, equity, inclusion, if the inclusion part doesn't work, they won't last. And in 84% of cases of this study, that female CEO or leader who then departed because of that glass cliff, guess who she was replaced by? A man. And so quotas may work in a system where there is also, uh, you know, inclusion all across the organisation. Thank you so much for your time and your questions. Thank you for our wonderful panel. I know we could speak forever. A huge round of applause. And I hope you have some practical tips to take away. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app.